It is a beautiful day to be alive, and I'm so glad we have this time together. I'm Sanaa Laybourne, she, her. I am a professor, scholar, connector, and avid reader. I've always loved learning about what's happening in our social world and sharing that knowledge, especially over a good cup of coffee. And so here we are. Each week on Let's Grab Coffee, I catch up with experts from across the country and around the world who are investigating our most pressing social issues and common curiosities. Over the next hour, you'll learn about their inspirations, motivations, and of course, what they know about the world around us. So go ahead and grab your cup of coffee and get ready for an engaging and insightful conversation. We spend a lot of our time on the road, commuting to work, running errands, meeting up with friends and family. In fact, maybe you're listening to this conversation while you're on the road. Data shows that the average American spends about 22,320 minutes or the equivalent of 15 and a half days per year driving. And approximately 92% of American households own at least one car. For all the possibilities that roads open up for us, it's not without a cost. To talk more about how roads impact our lives and the lives around us, for better and for worse, today I'm joined by Ben Goldfarb. Ben Goldfarb is an independent conservation journalist. He's the author of Crossings, How Road Ecology is Shaping the Future of Our Planet, which the New York Times named one of the best books of 2023. His previous book, Eager, The Surprising Secret Life of Beavers and Why They Matter, was the winner of the 2019 Penn E.O. Wilson Literary Science Writing Award. Ben's writing has appeared in The Atlantic, Science, The Washington Post, National Geographic, and The New York Times, among many others. Ben joins us today. Hi, Ben. I'm so glad to have you here with us. Hey, Sana. It's good. It's good to be here. And I have to admit that I'm already fully caffeinated today. So I'm, I'm just drinking water right now. But uh, don't don't hold that against me. OK, I think that is perfectly fine because I'm okay. on cup two or three or maybe four. So I'm also very caffeinated, but I, it's not going to stop me. <laughs> uh, I'm going to have some more caffeine while we talk. Uh, but right. I'm just so glad we have this time together because I have to tell you this book, Crossings, it completely captivated me. Um. I had no clue really, okay, what is road ecology? How is it shaping the future of our planet? (laughs) Um, But I have a strong love for the open road as it was really a big part of my childhood. My family, we would drive cross country um, throughout, you know, in the summertime and even in the winter. And we were the family that had um, the pop-up camper, um, the, you know, the, the road, the RV. And so being on the open road was just a big part of my childhood. Uh, But reading your book, it definitely made me think about all those roads very differently. Yeah, you know, I look, I think that's one of the great paradoxes of roads, right, is that they, you know, they really are how we experience the world around us and including nature, right? The iconic American road trip as you as your family uh, went on when you were a kid, you know, of course, we did that too, driving to Yellowstone and Acadia and, uh, you know, all of these beautiful national parks uh, around around the country, you know, the cars are how we experience that that you know this this beautiful landscape that we uh, in, inhabit, even as all of that traffic and the roads that that traffic rolls upon are destroying that that very same nature. That's kind of the the irony I think at the uh, at the heart of this book. 
Yeah, absolutely. And so I'm wondering for you, how do you make sense of that? The fact that, you know, roads give us access to see nature, but also to connect maybe with, you know, one another. But then also there's so much uh, destruction um, and change, um, sometimes for worse, that roads are also bringing, not just for us as humans, but also for wildlife. Like, how do you make sense of this? Yeah, it's it's really it's a, it's a, another paradox I think. It's a challenging thing to think about, right? Because as you say for us, you know, roads are these incredible forces of social connection and economic activity and freedom, right? I mean, they're how we get to schools and hospitals and how we get our goods to market and how, you know, the Amazon package uh, shows up on on your doorstep, right? So there are all of these, uh, you know, social and economic goods that roads provide. And there are these forces again of, you know, human mobility and freedom, you know, Jack Kerouac writing about the open road or Bruce Springsteen singing about it. You know, these are sort of mm -hmm. iconic American cultural touchstones. You know, I mean, everybody uh, celebrates the, you know, the, the open, the open highway and uh, all of that, uh, that, that freedom it provides us. And, you know, I think, I think the thing we have to remember is that for all of the freedom that roads are providing us human beings, you know, they're, they're doing the exact opposite to basically all other beings on this planet, right? They're curtailing. Mm -hmm their movement and mobility. They're preventing animals from completing their migrations and finding mates and food and getting to the places they, they need to go. So that's the, you know, that's the duality of roads, I think, are their enhancers of, of human momentum and mobility and, and their truncators of wild mobility and, uh, and freedom. Mm -hmm, absolutely. I mean, here in Tennessee, something that a lot of drivers are probably familiar with are deer, right? We have a lot of deer here in Tennessee and a lot of, of course, deer vehicle collisions. And I was looking at some data for Tennessee and um, our deer vehicle collisions are rising and have been rising over the past couple years. So mm. 8,000 recorded deer vehicle collisions um, in 2022. And we're already, you know, on the way to exceeding that in 2023. And I think that's probably one of the ways that people can think about the hazards of roads and driving, right? You see a deer, you don't know what to do. You're wondering, why is this deer just standing there? Why doesn't it get out of the road? <laughs> right. um, and, you know, you do talk in the book about deer vehicle collisions. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more, you mentioned like migration patterns, and I'm thinking about that in particular in relation to deer and just their habitat. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about how um, roads are, are, are altering migration, um, how we should maybe be thinking about roads and deer and, and our relationship with driving and deer and the habitat that we both should be sharing. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, it's such a, it's such a good question. Look, I think that the the interesting thing about deer in relation to roads is that you know they're almost part of this feedback loop, right? And uh, you know I read about this in the book how you know until the middle of the 20th century that you know there were very few deer on the American landscape. You know they'd been hunted almost to extinction, which is wild to think about, right? Because now they're all over the place. But you know in in the 1930s or 40s, you know you would have been pretty hard pressed to find a deer uh, in the in the United States. But you know kind of the fascinating thing that happens around around the middle of the century is you know we start creating suburbs, right? And, and, you know, it's really the car that births these suburbs. You know, we're building all of these new big interstate highways and Americans are moving out of cities uh, into this, you know, kind of this novel category of landscape, the, the American suburb. And those suburbs 
turn out to be incredibly good deer habitat, right? We know that, you know, anybody who lives in the suburbs, you know, sees a million deer walking around, you know, browsing their garden or landscaping or, or what have you. You know, if, if you go to the suburbs of Virginia, for example, you know, there's something like a hundred deer per square mile, which is maybe five to 10 times more than there were at the time of European, uh, European arrival in North America. So, you know, suburbs are just incredible deer habitat. So in some ways, you know, this this explosion of, of American automobility in the middle of the century created amazing conditions for deer to proliferate, even as those same cars endangered those same deer in a lot of ways, right? And as you say, you know, the drivers themselves were also part of that endangerment. You know, between two and four hundred people are killed in these these deer crashes every every single year. So cars kind of made exploding deer populations a thing, um, even as cars, you know, even as deer made driving increasingly dangerous, you know, Americans in the, in, the, in the middle of the century are driving farther and faster than ever on these giant new interstate highways. And all of a sudden, you know, here's this, you know, 150 pound mammal wandering onto the asphalt, getting in the way and and uh, endangering lives on on both ends. So, you know, this field of science, road ecology, that this book is all about, is you know, in a lot of ways, it's it's deer science. You know, because because as you say, you know, deer that deer vehicle collision is just the way that so many of us experience uh, the intersection of of roads and nature, and it's you know, it's been that way for 75 years. Yeah, you know. I guess I was more attuned to it while I was reading this book. I remember I was driving and meeting a friend for breakfast and I'm driving through um, like a business park and I see this deer warning sign. And it, it made me think about your book, one, because again, of this kind of uh, development, um, suburb creation of suburbs. And here was this, you know, beware of deer, deer crossing sign right here <laughs> in, a, in a very commercial area. But it made me think about that. And then it also made me think about like, wow, would I really have been as aware of this sign and paying attention to it had I not been reading your book? Uh, because as you talk about in the book, you know, we can become a little blind to these animal crossing signs because they're they're everywhere. Um, and so we can kind of ignore them. Um, but we're talking about, of course, road ecology. And I would be remiss if I did not give you an opportunity to tell our readers exactly what road ecology is. Um, it might seem maybe it's obvious, but um, could you talk a little bit about what road ecology is and how you became interested in it? Sure. So road ecology is, is this field of science that looks at how roads shape nature uh and you know that 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 dead deer by the side of the road or the dead raccoon or squirrel or opossum right roadkill is sort of the you know the most obvious manifestation of how roads and nature interact and you know definitely a lot of road ecology is focused on roadkill you know why it happens why it's such a big problem how we prevent it um but you know that's that's kind of the tip of the iceberg in a lot of ways right i mean you you alluded earlier to the ways that roads cut off migration and that's a that's a big part of road ecology is understanding how you know these constant walls of traffic that roll down so many of our highways prevent animals from even attempting to cross roads and thus you know deny them access to habitat and prevent them from finding mates um you know a lot of road ecology is about about road noise pollution you know the fact that all of these this engine and tire noise is a, a huge stress for humans as well as for, for animals. You know, we've got road salt that we uh, apply in enormous quantities, 20 million tons every year uh, on our, our highways as a de-icer. 
And all of that salt, you know, runs off into rivers and lakes and streams and, you know, transforms aquatic ecosystems that way. You've got tire particles, you know, bleeding into the environment, uh, killing fish in some parts of the country. So road ecology is, again, it's this big discipline that looks at all of these different connections between our, our transportation infrastructure and, na and nature and tries to figure out what we do about them. You know, it's, yes, it's a, it's a science that's about documenting problems, but it's also about trying to figure out how we can heal some of these divides that uh, our, our transportation network uh, creates. As for, you know, my own interest, it, it really goes back a, a decade. Um, in, in 2013, I was in uh, Montana writing about uh, wildlife conservation and, and management. And I had the chance to take a tour of these, these wildlife crossings uh, on Highway 93 north of Missoula. Uh, you know, wildlife crossings are these bridges and underpasses and tunnels, all of these different passageways that basically allow animals to cross highways safely without getting killed. Uh, and... You know, I had the chance to go up on top of one of these wildlife bridges that have been built for, you know, elk and grizzly bears and moose and other critters. And it was just, you know, it was just such an inspiring thing to see, right? We, we do so much on this planet to make animals' lives harder and more dangerous. And, you know, here was this multi-million dollar piece of infrastructure that uh, we built to make their lives safer and, and easier, hopefully. And I just found that really uh, beautiful and poignant. And it got me thinking about roads and wildlife in a, in a new way. And, uh, you know, a decade later, I'm still kind of on that journey. Yeah. And we we're so glad that you were on that journey because the book, I mean, it's such a, a the writing. I was really there with all these different wildlife. Um, you talk, you give a lot of different examples of different conservation efforts um, and centering it around some animals that we might be familiar with that kind of draw us in. And I have to admit, um, there's a chapter about butterflies and really about um, roadsides as an ecosystem. And the way I was holding my breath for that butterfly that you mentioned <laughs> um, that was laying its eggs. And I was like, if this story ends with this butterfly getting hit by a car <laughs> I, I might have to take a moment to cry so that's a little spoiler alert for folks when you when you buy the book um the butterfly lives okay so you don't have to have that stress <laughs> that I had. yeah imagine imagine watching it it was terrifying <laughs> I, right exactly um but to your point when we talk about um roads and we talk about these wildlife crossings um i really encourage listeners to just google some different wildlife crossings so they can get the scope of you know what a wildlife crossing is and why you are so captured by seeing this, you know, one of these wildlife crossings as well, because they're just really magnificent. Um, here in Tennessee, there's a, a project for I-40, one of our highways in Tennessee, um, a Pigeon River Gorge Wildlife Crossing Project. And so that made me excited, again, thinking about how we can preserve wildlife, how we can preserve the ecosystems, or at least um, hopefully preserve them in some ways, um, based on, again, some of the, the problems that we're creating from roads, but also hopefully coming up um, with some solutions as well. Yeah, absolutely. That's you know, and that Pigeon River Gorge project is a, that's a that's a really a really cool and exciting one. You know, it's it's interesting. We, I mean, there have been so many wildlife crossings built out west. You know, I live in I live mm -hmm. in Colorado, and you know, Colorado, Wyoming, Utah, Montana. You know, these these are the states that are kind of the traditional leaders in wildlife crossing construction. And you know, the reason for that is that out here in the west, we have these big herds of migratory 
migratory animals, you know, deer and elk and antelope who move along these really predictable corridors, you know, and they cross highways in the same place every single year. So if, you know, a herd of a thousand deer crosses a highway and 50 of them get hit, you've got this big pile of carcasses saying, you know, put a wildlife crossing right here, right? Whereas in the in the east, you know, there's they're kind of like white-tailed deer all over the place. Um, and it's, so it's harder to know where those hot spots are. And I think that historically, you know, a lot of a lot of states have kind of said, well, you know, like this is really a problem that we can't deal with in the East. And, you know, the, those Western states can build these wildlife crossings, but we're not going to worry about that because there are deer everywhere and you, you can't really solve this problem with a couple of crossings. But, you know, I think that Pigeon River Gorge is a really good example of, you know, a place where Eastern states where Tennessee and, and, uh, and North Carolina are kind of saying, hey, you know, wait a second, there's this, there is this great opportunity uh, to, uh, you know, to build some of these structures in, on our own landscape and help, you know, deer, elk, black bears, coyotes, all kinds of different critters uh, who, who uh, you know, who live in uh, around the Smokies. Um, so, yeah, it's definitely, uh, you know, the, the, these crossings are becoming more geographically diverse, I think. And that's that's super exciting. Yeah, I was definitely excited to to find that information because, of course, I was like Googling. I was like, wildlife crossings in Tennessee. Do we have such a thing here? Um, and I figured that, oh, Tennessee, do we care about the animals, right? Like, do we care? Um, and so I was very excited to see that we do care. And we there is a lot of excitement around making sure that this um, wildlife crossing project, you know, comes to fruition and that we're able to not just protect drivers, which I know a lot of the ways we kind of advocate for different crossings are focusing on us as humans and how it benefits us, but also that we can have us have a way to take care of animals as well. Because as you mentioned earlier, and you talk about in the book, you know, do we have this moral obligation, you know, to take care of animals and to take care of um, the ecosystems that our roads are disrupting? Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I think, I mean, I think that you're, you're exactly right that, you know, historically when we, when we've built these, uh, these wildlife crossings, you know, we are really focused on human and driver safety and, you know, look, that makes sense, right? The transportation departments who build these things, I mean, that's their job is to get drivers safely from point A to point B. Uh, so of course they're focused on driver safety. So we tend to build wildlife crossings where there are lots of collisions with, you know, deer and elk and moose and these other big mammals that, you know, mess you up when you hit them. Uh, and, you know, there are lots of great examples of wildlife crossings that actually pay for themselves really quickly because, you know, if look, if you can build a wildlife crossing that prevents, you know, 50 crashes in a year, well, you're saving so much money to the public on hospital bills and vehicle repairs and tow trucks and insurance costs and so on, you know, that these these multi-million dollar wildlife crossings are actually pretty, pretty cheap when you, you know, you, when you do the long-term cost benefit analysis. But, you know, that also means that when we focus on human and driver safety, you know, we don't build crossings for the animals that don't mess your car up, right? We don't really build many wildlife crossings for frogs and salamanders and turtles, you know, all, all of the, the little critters out there that are, you know, getting run down in, in gigantic numbers, but, uh, you know, aren't, uh, aren't killing any people. Um, so, you know, I think that's the kind of the future of this field is, is taking a, a broader look at the entire ecosystem, not just focusing on, you know, the large game critters, but also looking mm -hmm. at the reptiles and amphibians as well and saying, you know, hey, these animals aren't threats to us drivers, but they also need help. 
Yeah, they definitely need help. You know, as I was reading and, and, and you talk about some of these, you know, smaller animals or even insects that we don't give a second thought to that they splatter on our windshield or, you know, they, they're underneath our tires and we don't hear, you know, the crunch. Um, it made me think about um, one of my first road trips as a, a young adult. I was an undergrad in college and some friends, we hopped in a car and we we're going to go to Atlanta. Um, and kind of almost as soon as we hit the highway, uh, we ran over a turtle and I will oh, never no. forget that. It was very traumatic. Um, and that memory like resurfaced as I was reading your book about, you know, the animals that we want to take care of the animals that we think of as, you know, dispensable because there are so many or because they're not causing damage to us. But I think your book really opened or at least it opened me up as a reader to think about, OK, what about all these other you know, smaller animals or even insects and the importance that they hold for our overall environment as well. And what happens when these roads might eliminate entire populations um, that maybe we can't see or that maybe don't tug at our heartstrings, but are still really important in, in the world overall. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm sorry that I'm sorry about that turtle experience. That would that would definitely be traumatic. I mean, turtles are a great example of that, right? These, you know, these animals that uh, are are sort of disappearing, I think, without us, us realizing it, you know, turtles are in some ways like the archetypal roadkill victim, you know, just because they're slow, you know, a deer can get out of the way of a car, but uh, a turtle, a turtle's not going anywhere, unfortunately, you know, in, in the case of turtles, you know, the animals who are getting hit, are overwhelmingly the females, right? Because the males just hang out in the pond. It's the females who have to leave the pond and go look for, uh, you know, some good sandy soil to lay their eggs in. And often, you know, that sandy soil is along roadsides or they have to cross roads, uh, you know, looking for a good place to lay. And so, you know, there have been studies showing that, like there was one famous study on in, uh, in Texas that showed that, and I forget exactly the statistic, but it was something like out of 350 roadkill turtles, 345 of them were females. Uh, which is just like a horrific thing to contemplate because, you know, you need those females, of course, for the population to survive. And, you know, I think in a lot of cases, because turtles are so long lived, you know, you might drive past a pond and say, oh, look, there, you know, there are some turtles, they're doing fine. But, you know, those could just be, you know, a few ancient males. Uh, there are no females left and the population is is doomed long term. And so, you know, I think turtles are a good example of, again, of a species or a group of species that we're, you know, we're, we're actually losing really quickly here, but we don't recognize it because, you know, there are a few individuals hanging on, uh, even though the, the larger populations might might be doomed because all of their females have been hit by cars. Mm. Oh, the turtles. Uh, yeah, so the poor freaking turtles. The I know. poor turtles. <laughs> you know, but you bring up an important point because our, our roads, our driving habits, they could be leading to extinction of different species. Um, and even our roads and again, our, our traffic patterns and our driving habits um, can also influence evolution, which I thought was really intriguing. I never even considered that. Um, but you talked about these different birds and how they've been impacted by traffic. And I'm wondering if you could talk about a little bit more about that for our listeners. Yeah. So this is, you know, I, th I think one of the most interesting stories that I, I came across and is in the, in the book uh, is the story of cliff swallows. And so cliff swallows are these, these beautiful little birds that live in these mud nests that they, they build on the underside of overpasses and highway bridges. And yeah, yeah, I'm sure that many listeners have seen these, you know, these little mud nests with, you know, like these beautiful kind of brilliant, uh, blue and red birds flitting around them. And so those are cliff swallows. So they're animals that are, you know, really good at 
taking advantage of human infrastructure and, you know, and, and living around, uh, around people. But of course, you know, if you live uh, on the underside of a highway overpass, obviously that's a dangerous place to be, right? So cliff swallows get, get hit by cars uh, in, in many cases and lots of birds get hit by cars. You know, I think we also, we often don't recognize how many birds get killed because they're so small. You know, you, you can see the dead deer by the side of the highway, but you don't see the dead sparrow, right? It's just too small mm-hmm. and you're going too quickly. So we don't recognize that, you know, birds are an enormous, uh, sort of group that's impacted by by cars uh, hugely. So anyway, so cliff swallows are, you know, they're they're they they become roadkill like so many other birds. But, you know, what scientists have documented uh, is that they've actually become less susceptible to roadkill over time. So there's just as many of them out there, but they're not getting hit by cars uh, as as frequently. And so this this uh, cliff swallow researcher named Charles Brown in Nebraska, uh, you know, what he basically figured out by looking at cliff swallow bodies over the course of many decades is that the reason that they're becoming less vulnerable to roadkill is that their their wings are getting shorter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the reason for that is that if you're so if you're a bird, having a long wing is good for flying long straight distances, whereas having a short wing is good for maneuverability and agility, uh, you know, getting out of the way of, uh, you know, a falcon, a predatory falcon, or, you know, an 18 wheeler barreling down the highway, right? So what was happening in, in Nebraska is that all of the long wing cliff swallows were getting hit by cars, the short wing swallows were avoiding them, and the whole population was evolving uh, through natural selection to develop short wings. And, you know, I just think that's so amazing to contemplate, right? We think about evolution as this process that unfolds over thousands or millions of years. Mm -hmm. It's this incredibly glacial geologic process. And yet, you know, cars and traffic are such a powerful selective pressure that they're literally driving evolution in just a a few decades. Mm -hmm. That is just, it's mind blowing, right? For me, when I was reading that, I was like, oh my goodness, wow. And thinking about, again, just how our our roads and what we're, our decision-making, how that's changing these different animals' lives. Um, Another point that you bring up in the book is that, you know, roads are also shaping our own life, right? We think about us making decisions about where roads are going, but really roads are also shaping how we move um, the patterns and, and things like that. And so I thought that was really interesting to consider this relationship that we have with the roads, with animals, animals with roads, et cetera, and how the roads are really shaping our lives as well. Yeah, no, you're you're you know, you're you're absolutely right. I mean, it's it's kind of eerie almost how the the ways in which roads affect nature and the way they affect our own lives are, are kind of parallel. You know, I always think about road noise as being one really powerful example of that, right? That we know that you know, for wild animals, road noise is this huge form of habitat loss. You know, if you're uh, a songbird who has to, you know, sing to attract a mate and, you know, you can't be heard over the sound of uh, engines and tires, then, you know, you functionally can't live in that place, right? Or you can't find a mate. You know, if you're a, an owl who has to listen constantly for the crunch of a mouse's feet in the leaf litter, you know, if, again, if you can't hear the mouse's footsteps, then you can't hunt there, right? So so road noise is this huge form of of habitat loss for many wild animals. You know, a road itself might only be 100 feet wide from shoulder to shoulder, and yet this kind of acoustic envelope of billowing noise pollution can cover a couple of miles in in some cases. And, 
you know, road road noise is affecting our lives in in really similar ways, right? There's been lots of research showing that uh, you know road noise elevates our blood pressures and our cortisol levels, and thus makes us more susceptible to cardiac disease and stroke and diabetes and all of these other health problems. You know, there's one amazing study uh, in Paris that I, I, I cite in the book uh, that basically found that people living in the in the noisiest neighborhoods in Paris, controlling for all other variables, lived for three fewer years than people in the quietest neighborhoods, right? So road noise is, you know, literally taking years off of our lives. And, you know, I think we don't, we don't really recognize that in a lot of ways, you know, we're so awash in, in road noise that we don't, we don't uh, always notice it, uh, even though it's sort of this subtle background stressor uh, that's, that's omnipresent in our lives and is, is really uh, messing us up. Yeah, it really is. You know, I was um, so intrigued by this um, idea of acoustic ecology um, that you're, you know, referring to implicitly. And just thinking about, again, how even a very, you know, low speed road is still causing lots of damage when you're thinking about that habitat loss or the ability for different animals to find prey or to navigate a space um, and even impacting, you know, migration as well. And so it just gave me so much more to think about. And now as I've been driving um, over these past few weeks while I've been reading the book, I'm just more conscious of like, okay, what is this road doing to to me, to, to the to the wild? life. And I think I've been um, more conscious of just observing even roadsides, um, looking for roadkill, but then also looking for what is on um, the sides of the roads, right? Is it grass? Is it some other type of like vegetation or or what? And, and what might that decision making, right? What was the intentionality bet- behind why these roads have been constructed in this way? Yeah, that was really my intent was to take, you know, the the fun American road trip and make it kind of depressing and academic. (laughs) (laughs) No, you're I mean, that was that's, you know, no, I mean, truly, in some ways that that really is the intent of the book, right, is to, you know, to make us see these these things that we use every day in a different way. I mean, we're, you know, there's there's such ubiquitous features in our lives. Roads are, you know, we we drive on them daily uh, that we don't really recognize them or notice them at all. They're, you know, they're in some ways invisible to us. And yet, you know, as you as you say, they're. You know, they're these products of human design and engineering and decision making and planning. You know, there's so much that goes into them socially and, and ecologically. And, and, you know, and they're weighted with so much history, obviously, as well. Right. I mean, so many, you know, urban freeways, uh, you know, in, in the U.S., including in, in Memphis and uh, in Nashville, you know, are sort of very deliberately routed through communities of color, uh, you know, in, in sort of profoundly racist ways, uh, mm-hmm. and have had enormous, uh, you know, historical legacies on, uh, you know, on, on, I mean, name a name an American city, you know, L.A., Minneapolis, Miami, Syracuse, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so, you know, these these structures, these roads that we use kind of unthinkingly every day are, are freighted with history and and racism and you know and social engineering and public policy they're they're just uh, you know incredibly complex and really profound uh, structures to contemplate i think Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, I love that you you talked about that in the book as well, like the legacy of our roads, the intentionality um, of our roads, particularly as we think about how roads have destroyed communities of color and the decisions on where to place a highway. Right. And, and things like that. Uh, but it also.
also gave me some hope and encouragement to learn about uh, freeway revolts. I had never heard about freeway re yeah. revolts before or even how, uh, again, decision making about, OK, well, let's not expand a highway like in Syracuse, but instead, let's see if we can reroute traffic and try to change some of the damage that we've created to our human communities um, through the decisions that were made decades ago about highways. Um, so that gave me some hope that we could think about, you know, roads or maybe even undo some of the damage that we've created um, as we think about, you know, what type of world do we want to live in in the future? Yeah, ab absolutely. You know, I think with it, I mean, so that, you know, those, those freeway revolts that you're talking about, you know, there, those are, that's this social movement in the 1960s and early seventies to prevent, you know, these giant new urban freeways from being built in, in many cities. And they kind of had a, you know, a mixed, mixed success. There were some places where, you know, the freeway fighters definitely prevailed, um, you know, New York city, very, very famously. And, you know, and, and other places where, where, uh, you know, the white urban planners won and, you know, punched uh, a freeway through a, through a city, uh, but you know what's what's exciting is that you know today in some ways we're we're in the middle of this new wave of freeway rebellion. You know there there are uh, you know communities uh, all over the country who are thinking about roads in a new way. You know in part because you know these these giant. Uh, urban freeways that we built in the middle of the century in, in many cases are, are kind of nearing the end of their design life. Uh, mm -hmm. And so, you know, in, in Syracuse, which I write about in the book uh, as, you know, one sort of archetypal example of this, uh, you know, I-81, which was routed very deliberately through the 15th Ward, a historic, vibrant Black community, uh, you know, that that freeway is, is kind of reaching the end of its life. You know, it's it's sort of increasingly decrepit and unsafe and it doesn't meet modern design standards. And, you know, so there a few years ago, you know, the, the New York State Department of Transportation basically had a decision to make, you know, do we spend you know, a huge amount of money kind of retrofitting uh, and rebuilding this, uh, you know, this freeway that, is, that, has, that has done enormous social damage to the fabric of Syracuse? Or, you know, do we tear this thing down and replace it with, you know, an urban street level boulevard um, known as the community grid uh, and, uh, you know, and try to undo some of the destruction. And, you know, in, in, in the case of Syracuse, they decided on the latter that they're going to, you know, they're going to tear down this giant you know, monolithic, sun blotting, uh, hideous viaduct, and uh, you know, really, really reconstruct that that neighborhood, which is you know incredibly exciting. And they've done similar things in Rochester and Milwaukee and and uh, and elsewhere. So it's true that you know these structures that we uh, you know we built uh, you know seventy years ago. I mean, they do feel permanent on the landscape. They're so enormous and literally you know, concrete. Um, and, uh, and yet, uh, they need not be permanent. You know, we really can tear some of these, uh, historic racist monuments down. It's kind of like tearing down Confederate statues. Yes, we can do it. We've done that here in Memphis, and we can do that with these with these roads as well. Um, so that did make me excited, and and I have to admit now I'm kind of like keeping my eye on the community grid to see how that continues to unfold because that was a, a rather recent decision, um, and I'm sure there is a lot of you know a lot more that will have to go into making that a complete reality. So, but it's exciting to see that again, like you said, there's precedent for these changes and thinking about how we can interact with our environment in a different way, that it doesn't always have to be the way it's been. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, something else that really struck me, um, because again, like I don't, I have never thought about roads this much. 
<laughs> this much, right? <laughs> um, but you talk about road decommissioning as well. Um, so n- not just thinking about these highways, but, you know, or these super highways, but roads um, and that we can't just say, okay, well, we realize that maybe this road wasn't the, the best idea and we can't just abandon it and expect that, oh, nature is going to heal itself, uh, but that we have to be really intentional about correcting the, the disruptions that the road roads cause. And that really struck me, particularly because of the examples that you shared in the book about even in like national parks where roads have been decommissioned um, and the different impacts that that has had on the environment. Um, And so I was just curious about if you think there will be more roads decommissioned, particularly in our national parks um, or what that future might look like. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's such a, it's such a good question. Um, you know, so, so in the book, I, you know, I really write a, a lot about our, our national forests, you know, another kind of giant category of public land that we have, uh, you know, a lot of out, out West and, and there's, you know, there are also plenty of national forests in the, in the Southeast too, where, you know, your most of your listeners are. Uh, so, you know, so national forests, I think unbeknownst to most people, you know, the U.S. Forest Service is the single largest road manager in the world, right? Which is kind of like mind blowing, much, much bigger than the, the Federal Highway Administration. There are close to 400,000 miles of Forest Service road all over all over this country. Uh, and in some cases, you know, these remote parts of Idaho and Montana uh, and uh, Wyoming actually have higher road densities than like New York City, uh, because there are just so many old logging roads and firefighting roads and, you know, recreation roads and ATV trails. Uh, it's, you know, it's pretty surreal to be in some of these places where you're just, again, out, you know, so far from any interstate highway. And yet, you know, the the hillsides are just like striped with roads like, like uh, rice terraces or something. It's really just incredible to see. Uh, and so, you know, in that case, uh, you know, those those roads might be super remote, you know, very low traffic, and yet they still have lots of environmental impacts. You know, they're like bleeding sediment into streams and smothering fish, and, you know, they're triggering landslides that are destroying forests and, and so on. You know, all of these dirt roads are constantly kind of melting and, uh, you know, just uh, dumping silt into, into nature. Uh, and so... What, uh, you know, what the Forest Service has done, as you say, is, is, you know, kind of decommission those roads, basically take this heavy machinery, you know, excavators, front loaders, basically the same yellow Tonka toys that, uh, you know, were used to build the road, the road in the first place, and just chew that road up, you know, and just and just kind of like turn it into a, a, you know, a big, a big mess, basically, and then start replanting it with vegetation and and kind of let nature uh restore it. And it's, you know, it was really inspiring. And in, in working on this book, I got to go to a few places uh, where this road decommissioning had been done in, in Montana and Idaho. And, you know, 20 years on, you would have no idea that a road was was ever there. It's, uh, it's you know, it's pretty, pretty remarkable that we really can restore these structures. And so, you know, I find that uh, really exciting, too, that, you know, you sort of think about roads at two ends of the the spatial spectrum. You know, you've got these gigantic urban freeways, you know, in, in places like Syracuse. And then you've got these, you know, little tiny dirt threads out in the middle of nowhere in, in Montana. And yet they're both having huge social and environmental impacts. And we're doing work to destroy and remove both of them. And I, I think that's uh, that's that's pretty cool to think about that, you know, the the most grandiose paved roads and the the most humble, obscure dirt roads are, are uh, you know, are both being uh, removed from the American landscape. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm wondering for you, um, as you think about roads and road ecology and even wildlife crossings, um, are there still some areas maybe here in the U.S. or even globally where you have your where you're watching to see if wildlife crossings will be implemented? Yeah, definitely. You know, I'm, I'm really looking at um you know the the Midwest and uh, and and the East Coast, honestly. You know, like I, like we were talking about earlier. You know, the Western states have done a lot of this work, uh, and you know, the Eastern and Midwestern states, not not so much. Uh, but you know, that's that's changing. And and just this week, actually, there was this really big announcement from the the Federal Highway Administration, which is basically that. Uh, so in in 2021, the Federal Infrastructure Act allocated 350 million dollars for new wildlife crossings. You know, the largest pot of money uh, ever given to this. this this issue still not nearly enough, but you know, okay, at least we're you know starting to make some some small amount of progress. Uh, and just just this week, the Federal Highway Administration basically announced you know the first third of where that money is going to be spent in the states that received grants to start start building wildlife crossings. And you know, some of the some of the big grants went to states who have done a lot of this work before, like Colorado, Wyoming, mm-hmm. Utah, Montana. Uh, but, you know, some uh, grants also went to Kentucky and Missouri and Connecticut and Nebraska and South Dakota, states that, uh, you know, haven't built wildlife crossings before, but are starting to do the research to figure out where they should put them. Uh, and so these, you know, these grants funded, uh, you know, sort of those early studies to, you know, figure out, okay, where are the, you know, the deer collision hotspots or, you know, where are the, you know, endangered salamanders that we might, uh, we might care about and want to uh, protect from cars. Uh, and so I think that's really exciting. Uh, you know, the, the idea that, uh, you know, the, that states who haven't done a lot of this work in the past um, now have this, this pot of funding available to them uh, to start doing that research and, you know, figuring out where these, these crossings should go. And it's not just a Western issue, you know, it's truly a a, a national and and global issue. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yes. I'm very excited about that as well. Um, For our listeners who might be like, wow, I want to learn more. I want to get involved in thinking about what we can do about our roads and making sure that we are taking care of wildlife or even just the broader ecosystems. Um, Do you have any recommendations for ways they could get involved or even organizations that they could be on the lookout for? Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, I think that, um, you know, that Pigeon River Gorge project that you you mentioned earlier, uh, you know, that's, I mean, that's probably the, you know, the project that's, that's farthest along, uh, you know, in, in Tennessee, um, and, uh, is, you know, is definitely really exciting, um, you know, and there are groups like the Wildlands Network, uh, who have worked on that, and, uh, you know, the National Parks Conservation Association has has done a, a lot of work on on that uh, that project as well, and, you know, a million others that uh, I'm not going to be able to name. It's, you know, this big sort of coalition with lots of different partners. So I definitely, you know, look into that uh, project and figure out how to, you know, how to help there. And, you know, and then, I mean, I think, I think that a lot of this issue comes down to the, you know, the usual good citizen advocacy stuff, you know, talk to your, your legislators and, uh, you know, write letters and et, et cetera, et cetera. And, and, uh, you know, Look, there are opportunities to influence this issue right now. You know, I'm, I'm not sure about Tennessee, but but North Carolina, uh, you know, has really very rapidly become a, a, a leader in this, uh, you know, this this 
this topic and uh you know their legislature uh you know has has passed some funding uh for wildlife crossings for the first time so you know i think that the the southeastern states are uh, you know are getting involved in this issue uh in a way they haven't before and you know there's lots of opportunity i think to uh you know to do the uh, the usual you know good citizen advocacy stuff to you know make sure this is truly an issue on on the radar screens of uh, of legislators yeah, absolutely. And I was very much encouraged by some of the examples that you gave of individual folks who got really involved, right, in their home state or in their home areas and were able to raise awareness or and raise money, right, and eventually get wildlife crossings in their area. So I think there's always an opportunity for us um, as individuals to get excited, get involved, and then connect with organizations who are doing the work or just other folks, other everyday folks who are interested in this issue as well. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, one of the, you know, one of the cool things that I, I write about in the book is just this idea of sort of volunteer or, or participatory science. You know, the idea that, look, we're all driving around out there noticing roadkill, you know, that's potentially really useful data. And there are some great examples of places like California, you know, that have developed apps uh, mm -hmm. that allow, allow everyday, you know, residents of communities to note the roadkill they're, they're seeing. And then that information has actually informed the construction of wildlife crossings in, in some cases. And so, you know, in a sense, we're all part of this problem, right? We're all driving around, you know, we're all, uh, unfortunately, uh, you know, hitting, hitting animals, uh, you know, I've, I've certainly uh, hit hit a number of them. Um, unfortunately, I'm ashamed to say, but we're also all part of the solution. You know, in in so far as we're, you know, noticing these these lives that we're wasting on our, our road system, and we're all capable of of uh, you know recording that information. And you know, so many so many, and I can't speak to Tennessee specifically, but you know, so many states like California, Maine, uh, Utah, Idaho, you know, have have these really cool. Uh, sort of participatory science programs that allow uh, people to get get involved in this issue. And, you know, I think that's a, a fantastic way of, uh, you know, being road ecologists ourselves and contributing to uh, to a solution. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and for listeners, of course, you got to grab Crossings, How Road Ecology is Shaping the Future of Our Planet. I guarantee that you're going to be super interested and you're going to want to know what Tennessee is doing or what your home state is doing and get involved in some way because roads are so much a central part of our lives, uh, but also are impacting, again, all the lives around us as well. Um, ben, thank you so much for joining us here today. Such a pleasure to have you on. Thanks, and I appreciated all your fantastic questions. Thank you again to Ben Goldfarb. His book is Crossings, How Road Ecology is Shaping the Future of Our Planet. And I have to tell you, this book has completely blown my mind. It was such an enlightening read. I mean, we're on the road all the time. And again, there's just so many things we take for granted or they just never really cross our minds about, you know, where these roads um, are going, right? <laughs> um, what the impact is on the rest of the ecosystem, what the impact is on the animals. And this book just opened my eyes to so many of these questions that I didn't even know I had or these interests that I didn't even know I had. And, and like I mentioned, as Ben and I first started chatting, you know, being on the road has been a, an integral part of my life, of my upbringing. That was how we spent our family vacations, hopping in a car, driving cross country or in the RV. And it was a way to see this country, um, to see different parks and, and all of that. And so to learn about the impact that roads are having on 
animals and even on us as humans was so illuminating. And this book has definitely just changed my perspective. And not lying when I tell you, I read this book and had my computer right by my side the entire time because every time Ben was mentioning a different wildlife crossing, I was like, I want to know what this looks like because, you know, you hear wildlife crossing and maybe in your imagination, you know, who knows what image you're conjuring up, but I wanted to know what it looked like and the different animals that were benefiting from these wildlife crossings. And so that was really fun for me too, to be able to Google. And a lot of these wildlife crossings have cameras set up so you can see the different animals that are using the crossings and you really get a sense of how important they are. Of course, if you've ever unfortunately hit a deer or some other large animal, you probably already understand the importance of having a wildlife wildlife crossing, maybe a bridge that would go over a highway or even thinking about tunnels underneath a highway as well that help um, animals move across the landscape. Um, the other thing that I will say about this book, besides it absolutely changing your perspective of the roads that you're on every day, is another fun thing for me was that because it is about wildlife, or a lot of it is about wildlife, I also learned about a lot of different animals that I had no idea about. And so I was also Googling all these different animals um, and, and found some new maybe favorite animals. And I was like, wow, I didn't even know um, that type of animal existed. And so that was really fun. So all that to say, this book was just perfect for the, the learner in me. I got to learn so much about our world. And I'm guaranteeing that you will ask as well. So the book again is Crossings How Road Ecology is Shaping the Future of Our Planet. And I do have to admit that I'm going to have my eye on that I 40 Pigeon River Gorge Wildlife Crossing Project since that is partly in our great state of Tennessee as well. So this is a wildlife crossing in the Smokies. Um, and so that I was really encouraged by that because certainly, as I said, when I was chatting with Ben, like, I didn't think Tennessee would care about the animals, but look at us. We also are thinking about wildlife crossings and how we can, um, you know, benefit um, animals that we share, you know, our world with. So that makes me excited. Well, this has been Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm here every Monday morning, and I hope that you will be here as well. Of course, if you miss any part of this conversation or like me, you're like, oh my goodness, this is amazing. I've learned so much and you want to share it with a friend. Be sure to subscribe to Let's Grab Coffee in podcast format. It makes it super easy for you to re-listen, for you to share the show with a friend. Um, make sure that you do that. And of course, Course, make sure that you join me again here on WYXR. This is Let's Grab Coffee.